Mutations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners and viewers may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. Hello, everybody. This is Todd Fredericks. Uh, I am a associate professor of family medicine at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And I am launching here, all of us, into our continued journey into pre-hospital medicine with Dr. Jason McMullen, a man who has an extensive CV, a great love from before he was even a doctor for pre-hospital medicine, emergency medicine services, probably someone that you would just die to be in the mentorship of because uh, he has a lot of things to think about and say about his area of expertise. And he's part of that cutting edge of people that are developing these fellowships and applying them into American society. And I think they are beneficial. Everything I've seen says they're beneficial and they're going to help people in a lot of ways. So, Jason, I just welcome you back. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. Yep. And, um, again, we pre-recorded this, and I just got to, again, thank him again because he just worked. How, what was it, a 9, a 12, 24? What did you work? Oh, nothing that bad. I worked uh, eight hours. Well, that's not too bad. Uh, double coverage, triple coverage? Uh, so I start off single, and then as the volume picks up, we, we add an advanced practice provider. We add a resident. We add a, a second um, faculty position. So it's, it's pretty smooth that our staffing matched. So yeah, it's a pretty I'm, good day. I'm being a little bit wonkish, but for people who are interested in this topic, obviously they're gonna they're gonna pick up the lingo. But what kind of volume are you running at the facility you're working at? We're at about thirty five thousand uh, a year, very high uh, acuity. Um, I logged three hours of critical care time in my eight hour shift today. Mm. So um, it's a it's a rather sick patient population. Yeah, are they elderly? Or are they just drug addicts? What are they? What what, are the, what does it make it? What's their morbidity coming from? Sure. So here, uh, it's a, where I am is in a nice suburb of the city. Um, uh, rather elderly, uh, but also a, um, a large cardiology practice. Uh, mm. This is their base. Large oncology practices are based. Mm. Um, growing with everything else. So it's... Uh, but the way it's always been, it's a great community place to work. Yeah, I should I should put out for people who aren't from Ohio. My wife and I were just talking about this. We we had a, a day trip. My son was over at Kings Island, so we drove up in route to to uh, Detroit to a comic convention because he's a pop culture kid. So you know, dad's got to be a good dad and take him to the comic convention. And one Cincinnati, you know, people think of Cleveland, they think of that part of Ohio, and Cleveland's all right. I don't mind Cleveland. The, the north coast of Ohio is, a, and it really is. It's a beautiful part of the state. But Cincinnati is a very pretty place too, and the hills of Cincinnati and the town itself are really nice. There's a lot of great things about Cincinnati as a larger city uh, in Ohio, and it does. It has a. It has a. I mean, there's basically German immigrants that settled Cincinnati centuries ago. I mean, it's probably very entrenched families and communities in a lot of parts of the city. So older aging population. I mean, it sounds, does this this sound right? Yeah. You've been here since uh, 2004 and it's a great place to live and a great place to work and a great place to raise a family. Yeah. And you'll, do you like the reds? 
I'm a Cubs fan by heart. Yeah, there's so. a good one. I'm an Indians fan, so I, I, yeah, I'll give Cincinnati everything, but I'm, a, I'm not going to give their props to the baseball team. And it is beautiful, though. If you ever get to downtown Cincinnati, the river's beautiful in the summertime. It's a really nice place to go. So if you have an opportunity, go to Cincinnati and visit the city. And you can have the weirdest chili in the world because they put chocolate in it. I don't. No one knows why, except people in Cincinnati. I don't think they know why either. But Skyline Chili, you can go there too. I'm not putting out prop for prop Skyline. Uh, so, so I'll just. I'll just say this. So I'm going to go back. We talked before about disaster medicine, and I have had the privilege of working in a um, Wesleyan hospital in Haiti. And so I have seen Port-au-Prince. And when the Haitian earthquake came, the Port-au-Prince earthquake specifically, uh, we had faculty members in my institution that were all gung-ho about jumping on a plane and going to Port-au-Prince and they called me up. They said, well, you, you've gone overseas. You know what it's like to go into these places. What should we know? What should, actually, the question is, what should we pack? And I said, well, the first thing I'd pack would be a generator, a really big one, and about 5,000 gallons of fresh water. And you know, I went through this list of trying to explain to well-meaning academics who are really naive um, about what it looks like when you've had a natural or man-made disaster. And that I said, by the way, you know, when you get there, how do you plan on getting out? And how do you plan on eating? And how do you plan on doing that? And I, we talked a little bit about this in terms of introduction to pre-hospital fellows. Are you talking about that kind of stuff? Like if you go to, San, to, Hur, to Hurricane Sandy, that you may end up being in a gymnasium of a school taking care of patients for two or three weeks. And oh, by the way, you got to cover your own support because no one else can do it. They're already taxed. Does that sound like part of your program, Jason? Absolutely. Um, and I can reflect back on a lot of my experience with Please do. Ohio Task Force when you saw when, um, when I went out for, so it was Hurricane Gustav, Hannah, and Ike um, many years ago. Was that 2008, 2009? It was going to be the first big hurricane forecast after, uh, after Katrina. And I was gone for 17 days um, out with the crew. So you have to be ready to go. And, you know, we take pride and we are as wholly self-sufficient as possible because if you're going into a disaster zone, by definition, the infrastructure is down. And the last thing that we want is to take resources that are already limited away from those who need them most. Um, when uh, we were activated uh, to go to Haiti and we spent uh, four days at wright Pack Air Force Base awaiting for aircraft to go down, and more importantly, for landing strip space to open up. If you were there, you could probably comment better than I can. The rumors we heard was that, you know, of course, there was a outpouring of humanitarian aid, um, and people flew to to Port-au-Prince and to Haiti, and get there, and well, there's no power to to run the pumps to refuel your plane to leave the airport to make room for the next. There's no maintenance. There's no gasoline. There's no aviation fuel. And, you know, at times, sometimes the well-intentioned person can make a situation worse instead of better. So, you know, we live that on a daily basis for what we do, and we make sure that our fellows understand that uh, as well. Because uh, just like in anything, we want to, to prevent becoming a second victim. We want to prevent um, adding to the strain 
instead of making it better. We're there to, to serve, we're there to improve, we're there to respond, um, and not to show up and ask, I mean, you know, where's my meal, where's my water, where's my bed? What did your load list look like? What did you what did you take in that rucksack of yours that you thought I just couldn't live without? And maybe you can comment on that. What was it that you took that was you thought I'm going to go down and do some medicine, we're going to be doing all sorts of crazy stuff, trying to get people out of wherever they're at. What was the, what were the essential things that you thought were really important other than the I got to take some basic food for 4 or 5 days and some comes clothing. Was there any was was it medical? Was it your hands? Was it your mind? Was it equipment? What did you say? What do you think? Yeah. So uh, I'll tell you what is what's nice is that you know being as structured as we are, mm-hmm. um, you know the we have just an immense cache that is mm. that's ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really don't have to think that much about what I take outside of myself. I tell you what I my one of my favorite stories that we um, that we did. I got to go to um, uh, to help respond for Hurricane Sandy mm-hmm. and spent some time in New Jersey, uh, helping to backfill the local agencies on some of the barrier islands uh, to make sure that, that all the houses were evacuated and such. And then we moved into New York City. And it's New York City. And while there were parts that are um, that were um, up and running like, like nothing happened, there were some areas and neighborhoods that were, that were devastated. So we're there. And if you remember, this is over uh, Halloween. Yeah, that's right. And there were little kids um, running around in you know the disaster zone where all the houses are flooded, so everything is out on the street uh, to get it out of the house in their little costumes. And our crew saved up all the little candies that come in MREs because that's what we mm-hmm. we were eating, and sponsored our own little trick or treating, um, just for the the kids in this neighborhood. And there was. One kid was kind of talking, and he was scared of the dark. So my son, who was four or five at the time, gave me, so that I wouldn't be scared of the dark, a little um, uh, car's uh, headlamp Hmm. and a little car's light that when you clicked it, lit up. So I gave that to that little boy from my son so that he would not be afraid of his house that had no, no electricity. They didn't need doctors. Mm. Right? They didn't need structural engineers. They didn't need rescue technicians. They didn't need communication specialists. They just needed people with an open mind and open heart um, to show that recovery was was possible and was coming. Um, so I now after that I take a little something that is human more than anything else with me in my go bag and my care pack, just in case there's someone who needs that little bit of human touch it's not an ehr is it that's not what people need no we um when we were when we were there i spent a day helping to unload donations into a care center of people driving up from other parts of new york into this this central facility um you know one of my one of my mentors who's been involved in disaster medicine uh for a long time um says no Sometimes, even though you're a doctor, they just need a truck unloader. So that's what you get to be for the day. Yep. Um, and that's what, it, that's what it takes. And to get back into the bigger picture of you know, kind of pre-hospital fellowships and being a pre-hospital physician, what I do mostly when I'm out in the field with, the, with my crews 
is I carry something heavy because they don't need a doctor. They've got it all handled. The system works. And I'm just there purely for support. Um, so for folks that want to, to go into pre-hospital medicine, thinking that it's ritzy and glitzy and it is you know, doing nothing but heroic activities on the, the most sick patients you can imagine, you're getting in it for the wrong reason. It is it is out there just to, uh, like another mentor of mine said, just to try to make the world 10% better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, that, so again, more wonkish questions. Are you guys doing ultrasound in the field? Not yet. Um, we are we're integrating the air care. Um, so our, our um, hospital-based University of Cincinnati air care does employ uh, portable ultrasound. Mm-hmm. It has not made it into the field provider level yet. Um, we are, one of the beautiful things is how technology keeps advancing and getting more portable, more rugged, and more affordable. Um, I think we talked in one of the previous segments, though, over, you know, just because we can do things doesn't mean that we should do them. Mm-hmm. And one of my, uh, kind of one of the things that I base all of my, kind of my judgments are, uh, or my judgments on is how is this going to make a difference? If it's going to allow us to do a procedure that otherwise we would not, or avoid doing what we would or change a disposition or a treatment plan, then I am all for it. Um, if it's something that's just, you know, kind of ritzy and sexy and just because we can, I'm a little bit more of a late adopter when it comes to those things. Well, they also run the risk, too, of you have a technology that allows you to do something that maybe you shouldn't be doing no matter what, and you think you maybe get a little bit too bold, right? I mean, you think, well, I could do this now, and then you realize, yeah, but I probably really shouldn't be, even though I, you kind of a Pandora's box for a situation where you you can open the box now. You got the key. Um, you know, I we X rays are notoriously fragile devices, and so uh, especially in Haiti, we've looked at. In fact, we got a, a, a sauna site uh, for that hospital, and it's amazing what they've done with it because it's a robust piece of equipment, and it doesn't go down like the X ray. And it's amazing how they've adapted in fairly austere situations to using that technology to expand their scope of practice and diagnostic capabilities. And I am looking at units now that, I mean, my gosh, you can butterfly IQ selling a handheld ultrasound now for 2000 bucks. And you're like, well, how does this get integrated? Maybe it's something like the fellowship writ large that as, as it gets out there, you find uses for it. You never thought you could use and you just play with it and figure out where is it applicable and use the maturity to say, well, there's some places we won't go, but there's a lot of places maybe we can augment and improve care. It's a curious thing, isn't it? It is. And in a, you know, in kind of a forward looking kind of way, um, exploration of, um, use of ultrasound in the field is part of the core content and the core curriculum of pre-hospital medicine. Yep. Yep. Are you using it? Uh, I, you mentioned bougies and, uh, in uh, ET tubes before, and I, a bougie is a wonderful thing. I wonder if you guys have fiddled around with ultrasound-guided endotracheal intubation. Uh, we have not done with that specifically. Um, we are spending a lot of time right now in adopting video laryngoscopy um, currently. Like glide scopes? 
yeah, the um, not the B two brand specific, but the the McGrath has come to town. Yeah, let me just make that. That's a good point, Jason. I, I am saying a lot of brand names. That's a terribly wrong academic thing to do. We're all conditioned not to use brand names, but the fact of the matter is, is there's certain people in the markets that just have name recognition because they're just used like Xerox, right? I mean, I'm gonna go make a Xerox. No one makes Xeroxes anymore now. PDFs, right? So, but at one time, right. at one time we made Xeroxes, even though it wasn't a Xerox machine that was doing it. That's just so. When I say that's the ubiquity of the branding becomes the process, I guess, at some point. But I please, no one sponsors rotations. We're not advocating any kind of machines. Although some of the things I've mentioned, I won't be specific. They have been extraordinarily helpful in their educational programs, and they know who they are, and I can't thank them enough for helping us because they're very generous with their time and equipment to help us train students. And I'm sure you have that experience too, Jason. There's companies that just bend over yep, backwards absolutely. in their education programs. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, what's been the feedback? Uh, from your your fellowship grads uh, so far, what 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 when they look back or, or do you reach out to them and say, well, what did this do for you and where's it taking you? You couldn't have gone otherwise. Have you had that experience? We have. Um, you know, we we have a very large kind of reunion at the uh, National Association of the EMS Physicians annual meeting um, this past year. I think we had twenty five or thirty folks all come together that have come through Cincinnati one way or another, and you know, we, we learn from each other. Um, we consistently kind of build on our program. I always ask, you know, as they get a year or two years, three years out, what could we have done better to prepare you for what you're doing now? Um, and, you know, not to, not to brag too much, but we've been very successful in a short period of time of at least exposing our fellowship, our fellows um, to all the different possibilities that there are from dispatch to uh, direct response to helicopter response to inter-facility transfers, working with SWAT teams and technical rescue teams and USAR teams um, to, to really push the envelope where even though it might only be for, you know, a one three-hour educational session, at least we're trying to give them enough so that they're not hearing about something for the very first time when they're in their their real job. Mm -hmm. We certainly have benefits from the kind of the others that have come before me and forming emergency medicine and pre-hospital care in this region. And we do our best to kind of extend that gift of knowledge and experience to all those that, that come through here. Yeah, it sounds like what what impresses me most about UC and anybody can go to the UC website and look at the fellowship program, the syllabus. It is broad in scope of the agencies that are worked with. Everything, fire, police, tactical. I mean, there's a it it is for me. I'm too old. I actually even considered. I went was going to go to the dean and ask for a sabbatical year and apply to that fellowship just to have the experience. And you know, there's a certain point where you realize you won't get all the t-shirts and it's okay. But for young students, it is a really impressive program, and I'd encourage people who are interested to look at it uh, because it, of, of the breadth and scope of exposure to different areas that the program offers. It's really pretty cool. And you mentioned uh, the first segment we did about you've got fellows that are doing flight medicine. And w what's curious about this to me is for people who are listening, the, the traditional, okay, medevac. So a traditional civilian medevac for the last 30 years 
really when it started coming in 20 years ago that's also evolved rapidly i remember a time when they didn't use night vision goggles now everybody's got night vision goggle programs and we lost a lot of ems helicopters flying at night in the dark and and then of course the army aviator said this is crazy and they said we should put night vision goggles in now that we're retired from the army we always flew with them and now that's become safer even though it's still very dangerous work but the next step is something we witnessed in the Middle East and that U.S. medevac helicopters do not carry doctors typically. The British do. The British have Merck teams. They bring a big Chinook in and they have an anesthetist. They have an ER doctor. They have, they have a whole basic flying ICU in these helicopters. And I'm wondering if um, much the same way that not every squad requires a critical care transport team, that we eventually see this kind of evolve more extensively. Do you see that happening, Jason, where we have – a more ubiquitous presence of physicians doing interfacility transfers in aircraft is that happening do you see that evolving in that way uh it, yeah it's actually been a little bit of the, the opposite yeah um, i mean it i think it's a good uh, it's a good backdrop to know that you know pre-hospital retrieval medicine outside of the united states is most commonly physician-based so across Europe and Australia, hmm. um, there are physicians in, in the helicopters. Here, there's only a few programs that, that have physicians, um, and the number that have had uh, even resident physicians integrated part of the program has been declining a lot over risk uh, more than anything else. Are you talking but I think that there's liability there's, risk or the loss of losing a doctor in a crash? Um. Probably more the latter. Really, right? mm. um, you, you don't. It's the it's the front page of the New York Times effect. Mm. You want to avoid that at all at all costs. But I think there's a middle ground. While you know, I would love to be, you know, in a helicopter and out on the scene as much as I, I can and on every ambulance and at every emergency call, I can't be. And there are not enough physicians um, to to staff out the workforce. But when you take someone who understands the advanced medicine and understands the providers and understands um, kind of the, the resource constraints with subspecialty trained EMS physicians at the lead, we can train, we can up-train our critical care paramedics to a level that that is close, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There is a difference between a doctor and a nurse and a paramedic and an EMT. And there are certain things that will never change. But you know, instead of trying to create 10,000 more of me or you, we can create a few hundred more of me and you to really work and teach and focus on what's important for that clinical context where that provider is, is operating. And it can take folks like me and you to advocate within our communities or our healthcare systems for just expanding the scope and allowing what makes sense. So we talked about hemorrhage control, right? We're it, it makes sense and has forever that, you know, if I get cut, I bleed blood. Mm -hmm. And if I'm if I need fluid, I probably need blood back. But the barriers to pre hospital blood have been huge. I know. We're fortunate that air care has carried blood for as far as I can remember and uh, we've developed uh, plasma now so we can do one-to-one uh, -one resuscitations in our trauma patients. 
But now, through some recent trials and experiences, we're seeing that ground ambulance-based blood is huge. I think San Antonio mm-hmm. has just rolled out um, low titer whole blood uh, in their pre-hospital system with some early effects. It doesn't take a physician to do that. Mm-mm. It may take a physician to lead that charge, but we can, you know, again, with that knowledge and subspecialty training and, and that drive, we can expand that resource to our communities without having to be at every single bedside every time. Yeah, putting that in context for people who are listening, uh, I got called on the carpet by the transfusion committee because um, I <laughs> I had the, the temerity uh, seven, eight years ago uh, to transfuse whole blood into a patient who had been bleeding, and they didn't understand why I didn't use components. And I'm like, uh, because whole blood has everything. Why, why would I want to use components? Why wouldn't I just give them whole blood? They lost blood. Let's put blood in them. I, there was a time, Jason, this scares me to death to say this, and I think it's changing, and I think you guys are helping to make this happen. But there's a time when I said, if I was a victim of trauma, I think I'd rather be in Kandahar today. Uh, just before you get a lot of hate mail or, or whatever, mm-hmm. I know that the whole blood has been rolled out in Texas. If it was in San Antonio, phew, I got it right. It was actually in Austin. Sorry, guys. I love you all. No, no one's going to say that. It was that. somewhere in Texas. No one's going to say that. I mean, it, they, we know that there's also constraints and logistics. I mean, we talk about that all the time. You know, there are resources, and it's constrained resources. I mean, people donate their blood, and it has to be cared for. It has to be packaged properly. It has to, you know, I'm, I'm, you know all this, Jason, but people are listening. It's There are always uh, trade-offs, and how do you support that package going out? And, you know, are you wasting a resource? Does it go back into circulation if it's not used during a shift so it doesn't get wasted? These are all things that have to be considered because they, they're expensive assets, but they can be life-saving in someone who is in critically, critical need. Does your program prepare someone to do international evacuations? That's a great question, um, yep. and not directly, uh, but likely peripherally. Mm-hmm. So the same concepts that we teach are good, whether you are going 15 minutes uh, across town by ground, um, an hour and a half now from a rural outlying area to end by ground uh, to, to large kind of medical evacuation flights. There's nothing direct for that, um, but the concepts that we, we teach certainly apply. But it'd be a good foundation, right? So someone wants to do international SOS and they want to go to Banana Stand and pick someone up from the State Department and bring them back to, you know, big hospital in America and it's going to be 19 hours of flying and transport. A program like yours sets a foundation that gives a, a young physician the thought process necessary to, to consider those kind of things. Is that true? It does. Okay. Um, and, you know, the, again, I'm very proud of the, the program that, that we offer. But as we talked about in a, in a in one of the previous episodes, every program has its strengths and weaknesses. Mm. Um, and for something specific like that, if that is on someone's um, goal list and where they where their career trajectory is going, then while we would love to have everybody come through here, there are programs where that kind of um, uh, repatriation medicine is a core component, and it might be a, a better fit for that. For that individual. There's a lot of opportunities out there um, through the, the 40 some odd uh, EMS fellowships. Is this a conversation that a second year, a third year resident, let's say they're an ER resident, be their third year, a family medicine resident, their second year, 
is this the is that the time for the conversation with the director to say this is kind of where I want to go and I want to apply to your program? Would this would your program be good for me? And start networking yeah. to find the optimal fit. Is that right? Yeah, that's a great question. So the there's a great kind of um, repository of information and kind of a, a link bank on the NAEMSP website. So mm. There's the National Association of EMS Physicians website. Mm-hmm. Um, has basic information on all the training programs and keeps those links up to date. So spending a, a, a day just clicking around can get a lot of information. I sh- um, Go ahead. We get, I get emails all the time um, from uh, folks who are prospective EMS fellows and phone calls are very, very easy. I would highly suggest to uh, to the listeners that are coming not from a core emergency medicine program to probably get on the phone and on the email sooner than later because for some programs, it may take some logistical acrobatics to be able to, to facilitate training a non-core EM person. And to be honest, it has nothing to do with a person. It has nothing to do with the possibilities or what they're going to do in their lifetime. It simply comes down to how programs are funded. Um, Interesting. In that the some they have a spot through their GME program where they can fill it with anyone. Some of them that fill from EMS contracts or from uh, clinical work in the emergency department. So it's just making sure that there is enough lead time that for an attractive um, candidate that's not 100% typical, there's plenty of time to work through all those iterations. Okay, two more questions. I'm going to leave the last one to you, and, and then I'll finish this up so you can go home and eat dinner. Um, so is this a – is this a? I, I shudder – I never like to use the term audition rotation. I think it's offensive to whatever person you're working with that day if that's not the person that you're auditioning with. But let's say a rotation of interest or a um, – is this the type of thing where it's a good idea if you're non-EM if you're non-EM resident to do a rotation at the institution where the fellowship is so you can demonstrate skills or get to know the folks in the program, they can get to know you? Is that helpful? So it, it can but it can also hurt sometimes, right? The um, If you come in, you're a rock star, then it makes it easy. If you happen to rub someone wrong just because you rub them wrong on a, on a bad luck day, uh, sometimes they can leave a bad taste in the mouth. Mm. The, I'll also say that not all programs have uh, dedicated elective opportunities uh, based on how the, that program is structured. And when it comes down to away rotations, I can only speak to kind of how emergency medicine works, but frequently there has to be something offered at that away rotation that is not offered at the home institution um, to allow someone to go off-site for, for a period of time. That, too, will take just a little bit of, of investigation and asking I would say, you know, when, when I look at um, CVs and letters of interest that come across my desk, I want to be left with an understanding of why this person wants to spend an extra year of their life doing an EMS fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, so there should be a story, there should be a reason. To help 
build that in, of course, as a personal statement, which is great, and a CV. And if on that, you know, if on that Hey, Jason, you cut out the last 20 seconds. Can you recapitulate that for me? Sure. So when whoever, whatever CV or whatever application I'm looking at, no matter what the residency training specialty is, I look for for clues as to why this person wants to spend a year of their life doing EMS. So whether you're emergency medicine or family medicine or anesthesia, I strongly suggest that you maximize any opportunities you have at your home institution, whether it be through a dedicated elective um, on-site, reaching across the the emergency medicine uh, department, volunteering your time, doing ride-alongs, teaching and public outreach, just to kind of show that you've kind of walked in this arena and it's something that you that you're truly passionate about, as opposed to something that just sounds interesting. No, I think it's an excellent point. And I'm really glad you brought that up because I'm a preclinical educator. So I don't have all the ins and outs on this. And it's great to hear a postdoctoral clerkship residency guy come out and say that because I again I want to be able to educate students that have this interest and of course passion's everything I mean it, it shouldn't matter if it's a pre-hospital fellowship or a surgery residency if you're if you're just doing it because you want a checkbox it's not really the reason to use the program the program has very specific goals and people should know why they're going to it it's not just oh I want something on my CV to make me look cool it's because you really want training to apply to a problem that you see yourself entering into I think that's a great point so second to last question is Where's this at in 10, 15 years? What do you think? What's a, what's a pre, what's a, what do, what do you think if Dr. McMullen's looking in the future in the crystal ball and he says, this is where we see our pre-hospitalists at? What does the system look like? If you can think of that. That's a great question. I think that we are growing in, in two ways. First, as more physicians are fellowship trained, there's more workforce available to help um, to help guide the evolution and the maturation of EMS programs across the country. It's probably going to be in our urban centers more than anything else, but hopefully there'll be enough folks that will come through that are very interested in the non-urban and even the rural areas so that we can all grow. Some of it, I think, is going to be in advanced capabilities, either through direct physician response uh, to critical injury and illness, but also empowering our, uh, our providers to do the most they can for the situations that they're in and the public they serve. So that's one of the sickest of the sick. I think that we can start to do more from early recognition and early treatment of uh, life-saving and life-changing therapies. And then on the other, it's becoming more fluid um, and getting away from the you call, we haul, that's all approach to pre-hospital care. Where someone needs something, they have one number, which is 911, they get one response, which is an ambulance, with one treatment paradigm, which is transport to an emergency department. It is, uh, although it is how I put food on my table, it is highly inefficient um, and expensive and not in many people's best interest. I think that we're going to see continued exploration and growth in, again, having customized and tailored interventions that are able to have people pursue health care outside of the emergency department, either through linkage to care, 
through primary care physicians' offices, um, through alternate care centers, a more kind of tr- like true treatment and no transport um, done by non-physicians, either directly um, through indirect medical control, direct medical contact, uh, and telemedicine. Jason, do you ever see the, the day when you have pre-hospital direct admits in terms of really bypassing the ER? Like you get enough done in the field where you know what the problem is. We're not even going to the ER. We're going either straight to an OR. We're going straight to a cath lab. We're going, yeah, in, in terms of offloading some of this uh, like holding time in the ER while we sort things out, is you see the technology advancing to where you have enough diagnostic um, confidence in the field that you can go straight to the definitive care away from the ER. Does that happen? Well, so we already do that in, in some instances. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, pre-hospital semi-recognition mm-hmm. leads, to, leads to charge in that um, there are many areas where pre-hospital EKG says semi, cath lab is pre-notified. As long as that cath lab is up and running when they cross the threshold of the emergency department, they go straight to the cath lab table um, and they never touch an emergency physician or, uh, or an ER-based provider. Mm-hmm. So that is certainly possible and entrustable to do so. Um, you know, you can you can work in the setting of sick trauma. We talked about ultrasound previously. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if you have the person that is, say, a blunt or penetrating trauma that is hemodynamically unstable, that were able to start their blood-based resuscitation, use an ultrasound and diagnose um, uh, you know, an operative injury, it may be plausible to go directly to an operating room um, without touching an emergency department. But when it comes down to to the the less critically ill and injured, you may very well be able to do it. And there are some community per, med, uh, paramedicine and mobile integrated health programs that can do this that really fill the niche um, that has somewhat been been lost of home visits and somewhere in that early discharge home health uh, type of thing. So you have someone who's able to go out to a heart failure patient, weigh them, do some point of care testing for their their sodium levels, their potassium, their creatinine, their B-natriotic peptide, have a telemedicine consult with their cardiologist, adjust their medications right there, maybe even give them IV diuretics, transfer to the PCP's office, the um, emergency department, and render care where found instead of coming to an emergency department. I've also had a curious rumor, too, about there's at least one municipality I can think of that's doing in-field CT scans for neurological injuries like stroke. And... Uh, so CT scanners on back of ambulances is the, the newest shiny object that's uh, that's going around. Yeah, um, there are there are places that have had remarkable success. Um, there are others that are that are looking to really define the to define the niche. It's interesting, man. CT scanners in the back of ambulances. It's a great place. So we live in a time of magic and, and alchemy and, and things that were never even dreamed possible 20 years ago. And now, you know, you have a stroke in your living room and you may be able to get spun in your front yard and have someone giving you definitive stroke care before you even leave your neighborhood. 
it's it's yep, it's, absolutely. it's amazing. Wow. Yeah, just unimaginable. Unimaginable 20 years ago. Isn't that crazy? Jason, what have I missed? I've I've tried to just cover everything. It's your program. I mean, you're the ones running it and you're in the middle of it. What have I missed that people should know about? I think we've covered it all. Um, one thing for anyone to remember of emergency care, right, is whether it be in the emergency department, in someone's living room, on the side of the roadway, you, you are prepared and you're expected to be able to take care of the first few minutes to the first few hours of anything that you can imagine. And the goal of training is to, to expose you to as much as possible to keep your eyes open, your ears open, to give you enough of a skill set to get through and stabilize that time. And if you're not able to make them better, at least keep them from, from getting worse. It's what we strive to do. That's what I'm sure all of my, um, my fellowship directors across the country strive to do. We all do it in slightly different ways, but we all do it to, to try to make the world a little bit of a better and a safer place. That's a that's a great place to end. on. I do have one last question. Are you uh, are you a person that mentors outside of UC for a medical student or resident that wants to ask you a question and email you? My email is is always <laughs> open, um, and I'm more than happy to to make new friends. That's awesome. That's awesome. What is? Are you willing to give it out? Sure. It's just it's it's really really hard. It's first name dot last name at uc.edu. So Jason J A S O N dot McMullen, M-C-M-U-L-L-A-N, at uc.edu. And I'm a Twitter rookie, right? But my Twitter handle reflects back to my call sign when I was a volunteer uh, EMT uh, back in the mid-90s, what started me on down this pathway. It's at N as in Nancy, M as in Mary, R-S, and the number is 244. So at NMRS244 uh, for the now closed North Mecklenburg Rescue Squad outside of uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Wow, that's really cool. I, I, I think it's awesome, and I think that uh, I will add you to my Twitter. You're going to get something from Medical Cinema, um, from at Medical Cinema. That's me. And um, Jason, or Jason, Jason, this has just been awesome. I have learned so much, and I, and I live in Athens, which is two and a half hours from you which makes me a little bit scared because if something really bad happens to me, I want to be closer to you, <laughs> you know, and I want to be closer to your fellows. And I want, I want, I mean, it just tells me that UC has a gem of a thing going on where people in Cincinnati and Lexington, the greater Cincinnati area have some things going on around them and within their community that are just really cool. And uh, hopefully that will permeate out over time and we'll see even more of this stuff happen. I think it'd be really awesome to, to see urban areas where a dude shows up on a, or a dudette, I guess, shows up on a motorcycle, and in the back of their motorcycle panniers, they've got all sorts of magical tricks that can save your life because they're there firstest with the mostest really quick, and they've been trained well, and they're they're just. And maybe one day they'll even be a CT scanner on the back of a motorcycle. On the back of a motorcycle, that's right. It'll be like Doctor McCoy. They put a little thing on your head, wave something like a salt shaker over you, and suddenly they know everything about you. It's going to happen. There you go. I know. Okay, Jason, thank you. I, I just appreciate you so much, and, and keep up the good work, and I thank you for sharing all your time with me this afternoon. It's been awesome. 
thanks for having me. This has been fun. Yeah. And uh, for those of you who listen to Rotations, you know, again, you can always get a hold of us, uh, certainly on Twitter, at Rotations uh, PCAST, uh, or on iTunes, at Rotations or Rotations Podcast. Uh, you can certainly find me at OU. My, my email is not hidden. I'm a public employee of the state of Ohio, so they don't let us hide our emails, so you can get that. And by all means, if, if we've missed something, I'm sure, Dr. McMullen, if I sent him an email and said, hey, it's time for another interview, probably not today, but, but maybe if you come up with some questions that we can ask, I think it's a great topic, and it's an emerging area of medicine. It's some terrific science and application of knowledge and lessons learned, and who knows where it'll be in 10 or 15 years, so maybe it'll be time in a few years to have another conversation, say what's been the history of this and where's it gone, but for now, I wish you guys all, if you're listening, a belated happy Memorial Day. Think about someone that you care about. I've got several on my mind that have that have gone on and um, their families. And I just want to thank you for supporting Rotations and uh, our efforts to just expand the dialogue of medicine and science um, uh, for those of you who are interested in it. And thank you, and I just wish you a great afternoon. Take care. Rotations is pre-recorded in front of a live audience. Rotations is an experiment in student medical journalism. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is a part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communication. Guests on rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a League of Champions of All Things Medis- Medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators. And you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspodcast, or by visiting media in medicine.com. Uh, well, I've just finished up an interview with uh, Dr. Jason McMullen, who is, of course, the uh, pre-hospital fellowship director at the uh, University of Cincinnati. And he came out and he said, hey, I want to make sure that everybody knows about the NAEMSP.org. And what I'm going to do, just to check that, since I'm going to give you the disclaimer here in a minute, NAEMSP.org. This is the... Uh, National Association of Emergency Medicine Physicians. And Dr. McMullen tells me they have got great student participation. They've got great speakers. It looks like they've got the Manchester Grand Hyatt in San Diego, California for their 2020 meeting. I'm looking at their website. And we're supposed to also look up Dr. Philip Moy, uh, who has an EMS podcast uh, about pre-hospital medicine. Philip Moy, I'm going to say podcast. And I'm going to go ahead and click that. 
And Medic to Medic Podcast, Philip Moy on Apple Podcast. Now, I don't know anything about Dr. Moy. He's Philip Moy, MD, Dr. Phil. I don't think it's the same one. Um, and he, he's got a bio. And I would just, you know, if you're listening, go ahead and check out Dr. Moy. I'm going to call him. I'm going to find out what he wants to talk about. Uh, but it's Medic to Medic Podcast. He's got a lot of episodes on there, far more than I have in rotation, strangely enough. But looks like some great stuff with different folks. Check him out. Uh, he's on, uh, I'm looking at the iTunes. Stephen Cohen, Medic to Medic Podcast. Maybe that's an interview by Stephen Cohen. Maybe it's a different one. I'll keep looking. We're going to find the, uh, we're going to find the uh, Philip Moy podcast, and I'll probably just edit this out. You won't ever hear it. But um, anyway, that's all I got. And uh, disclaimer to follow. Have a great day. Bye-bye. After I get it, I reinvest. After I get it, I reinvest. After I get it, I reinvest. Stack and stack and stack and put it back in it. In some really funny ways, man. I promise you, man, really getting paid. Yeah, show a couple bands, flexing on the Instagram, man. Nobody getting fans that way. Yeah, well, you really dumb if you spend all your funds on some clothes and your tape need work. Yeah, you ain't gonna stand if you win a businessman, man. I promise you, the plan ain't gonna work. Yeah, rappers spending money in some really funny ways, man. I promise you, man, really getting paid. Yeah, show